following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Hi guys, good to be with you all. Um, So as part of starting our new sermon series in 1 Thessalonians, um, Aaron tonight is taking for his text a short number of verses from the book of Acts, which gives us sort of a background, a context to where 1 Thessalonians is situated. So the reading is Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilopolis and Apollia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think I'll invite Aaron up and just quickly pray for him. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for our vicar, our brother Aaron. We thank you for the words that he has prepared for us tonight. Your spirit, help him to speak your spirit help us to listen and bring us into greater understanding and faith of you in jesus name we pray amen thank you tom Uh, and let me add my welcome to that of ruth uh, both for those here and for those watching from home So friends, welcome to a new sermon series on the book of 1 Thessalonians under the title of Hope and Holiness. Over the next nine weeks or so, we're going to be looking at a young church community facing testing times and learning how and why the Apostle Paul encouraged them to hold on to both hope and holiness when faced with persecution, doubt, 
and the desire to understand more of what they had been taught as they sought to live out their response to accepting the truth of the gospel. We're going to learn more over the coming weeks of the new identity, purpose and belonging that they discovered in accepting that invitation to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and the challenges that arose for them as a result of that choice. Over the coming weeks, we will learn together how those challenges inform how we live out our own response to the gospel and how this letter better informs our own understanding of our identity, purpose and belonging today in the midst of the challenges we face, some of which directly resonate with those faced by the Thessalonians. But in order to understand the challenges that this new young community faced, we first need to understand a little something of Thessalonica itself, its culture, its context, its politics, all of which had an impact on the faith of the church in this place. And so we begin our sermon series tonight not with the book of 1 Thessalonians itself, but rather, as Tom has read to us, with Luke's account of how Paul and his companions came to found the church there and how the immediate difficulties that both Paul and Silas faced prefigure some of those that the community itself will face over the years to come. So what do we know about Thessalonica? Don't worry, not a pop quiz. Um, at the time of uh, Paul's visit there, at around 52 AD, I just want to recognise at the outset three uh, different things uh, at the outset that form some of the context into which Paul and Silas came. Uh, one economic, one cultural, and one uh, civic. First Thessalonica was the second largest city in Greece. It was a natural port. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia in northern Greece. And it was one of the key cities on the Roman road, the Via Ignatia, a trading route linking Rome with its eastern colonies. And as such, it was busy. Thessalonica was a busy, prosperous trading city, hosting travellers and traders alike. Secondly, it had what had been described as a rich cultic life, which means, like Athens, as we'll see in uh, the following chapters of Acts, it was also a site of many temples dedicated to the service of many deities, chief amongst which was the link to the Roman imperial cult, to the worship of Caesar. And finally, it's worth noting that Thessalonica's loyalty to Rome had been rewarded by it being a so-called free city, a city that enjoyed a degree of autonomous rule with an independent government. So this was a place, Thessalonica, this city, where trade, religious practices and government were all wrapped up within the Roman Empire and where its economic prosperity, culture and social order were rooted in the flourishing or loyalty to Caesar and to Rome. And it was into this cultural 
civic and religious context that we hear of Paul's missionary journey this evening. We pick up the account in uh, Acts just after chapter 16, where Paul and Silas have been in Philippi. They have been stripped, beaten with rods, flogged and imprisoned on the orders of the city's magistrates, having been accused of throwing the city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. And we hear an echo of that in our reading tonight with the charges that the crowd bring against Paul and Silas. In jail, Paul and Silas preach the gospel to their jailer who takes them home, feeds them, is baptised with his whole household and is described as being filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. And so Paul and his companions arrive in Thessalonica and do what they've done before. They carry out their established mission strategy which they have adopted in previous missionary journeys. Arrive in the city, find somewhere on the Sabbath day where the believers gather and begin to preach the gospel. This they do, we're told in our reading, for three weeks or for three Sabbath days until there is a riot by, we learn, some bad characters from the marketplace. Who thought such characters were to be found in the marketplace? Now, the former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, uh, once commented, wherever St. Paul went and preached, there was a riot. Wherever I go and preach, they serve me tea and cake. Why the riot? We're told that some jealous members of the synagogue put people up to it, but there's another reason alongside that, the one that the crowd bring to the authorities, which is that the message that Paul was preaching was revolutionary and had revolutionary consequences for any who believed. We read here that Paul's message to those he preached to was, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And the revolutionary consequence of that message is simply, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is the Messiah, then Caesar is not. We read the charge that the crowd make explicitly in verse 7, echoing the charge made against Paul and Silas in Philippi. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. The gospel message that Paul and Silas brings stands in stark contrast to the culture, religion and economy upon which Thessalonica is built. Let's go back to that recipient of tea and cake, Tom Wright, who notes this. The word gospel in Paul's world meant the accession of Caesar. And when Tiberius or Nero came to power, the imperial heralds did not go around saying, there's this new experience you might like to try on. 
Namely, you might like to give allegiance to Caesar if that suits you and if that's where you are right now in your own personal journey. They didn't do that. They said, Tiberius is emperor, get down on your knees. So we see that the narrative in which the Thessalonians are bit players is in fact the imperial narrative dominated by the emperor and his family with their quasi-claims to divinity and omnipotence. But the message brought by Paul and Silas challenges that narrative. The gospel they bring is an invitation and a challenge to align life stories with a different narrative, the narrative of Christ, divine, eternal, and powerful. The scene is set for a clash. The reading that Tom read to us last night and the opening chapter of 1 Thessalonians that, in fact, Tom will be preaching on next week give us a wonderful account of how people hearing the message of the death, resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah, understand that the invitation they receive cannot be limited simply to the spiritual side of life but impact on their whole life, upon the social, upon the cultural, and upon the political. This isn't some private belief which can be ignored. Rather, the claims of Jesus bring a fundamentally different worldview. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and so everything changes. There is a power at work in the resurrection that is more powerful than any earthly ruler. And the Thessalonians are invited to live that story, and in so doing, to change their allegiance from Caesar to Christ. It's the same invitation that's been issued down the centuries and has consequences for each person who accepts Christ as Lord. And just as with the Thessalonians, it has consequences for us today as we're invited to live within Jesus' story. Now, in that reading that we've just heard from Acts, the charges brought against Paul and Silas and the other missionaries contain a degree of irony. On one hand, the charges that they are disturbing the peace and promoting disloyalty to the emperor. And that just as the charges that were brought against Jesus were false, so these are. The movement of Jesus' followers is not about political ambition or plotting to overthrow Caesar in a political move. Those who bring the charges, those who have been incited to attack Paul and his companions, they're in fact the ones disturbing the peace. And there is the irony. But at the same time, there is a truth to the charge that the proclamation of the gospel threatens to turn the world upside down. Loyalty to Jesus renders all other loyalties, all other loyalties, to family, to nation, to empire, all are become secondary. The reign of Jesus 
does indeed threaten to overturn the status quo. We hear this back in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4. We hear it before that in chapter 1 in Mary's song in the Magnificat. We hear it at Nazareth in the Nazareth Manifesto where Jesus and his followers read, unroll the scroll in the synagogue and where Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah and says that he is there to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, all words that threaten all oppressors, including Caesar's. But if the Thessalonians were bit players in an imperial narrative, what about us? Accepting Jesus as Lord had consequences for the Thessalonians. It meant rejecting the imperial cult, losing out on the status that participation in that cult brought, and placing yourself at odds with the ruling powers and inviting persecution. So I want to finish with three questions, which I would invite you to hold as we journey through the summer and this sermon series on the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Three questions. Question one. If the imperial cult was the world narrative, the status quo, which Paul and Silas encountered and threatened to overturn, what are those things in our society today which demand our allegiance the way the imperial cult did then? What are those things, the practices, beliefs, or worldviews that constitute the status quo today and which contrast or stand in opposition to the gospel? It would certainly be pushing things too far to suggest that our modern-day leaders uh, make the kind of cultic worship desires of Caesar and the Roman Empire uh, nobody thinks Boris Johnson, for instance, demands that. But do the decisions that our leaders make sit well with Christ-shaped and Christ-centred living? Does, for instance, a decision to break a legally binding pledge, to contribute 0.7% of our gross domestic product as a nation, less than 1p in every pound to international aid to the poorest people on the planet. Does that decision feel like it reflects gospel values? More controversially, perhaps, what do decisions around abortion, especially the abortion of children who are born with Downs or other disabilities, and the promotion of screening programs to remove them or to prevent their lives. What do those decisions say to us about the gospel view which sees every life as precious in the sight of God rather than seeing a life in utilitarian or economic terms? And how do we as Christians respond? Question two, who benefits from the status quo? 
And perhaps more importantly, who loses out? Yesterday, uh, there was a news report uh, that came from the Tunisian Red Crescent of at least 43 migrants and refugees who drowned and died after a shipwreck off Tunisia's coast. The boat set off from Libya's northwest coast, carrying migrants and refugees from Egypt and Sudan and Eritrea as they tried to cross the Mediterranean to Italy. 43 died. Since 2014, in the past seven years, more than 20,000 migrants and refugees have died at sea while trying to reach Europe and Africa. Many, if not most, children. In the past year alone, at least 866 people have drowned while making the journey across the Mediterranean from North Africa to Europe. Who benefits from Fortress Europe? Who loses out? And then there are those who do make it here and claim asylum and the process of waiting for a decision to be made on their claim can take months or in some cases years. Decisions are then appealed with estimates that Home Office initial decisions are successfully appealed at a rate of over 50%, one in every two. The wait for an appeal can take years during which the person appealing cannot work, cannot claim benefits, and is effectively destitute. A member of our congregation in that process has been waiting two years for that decision. There is an alternative to waiting, to be locked up in the detention centre and to be subject to potentially degrading and dangerous treatment, as happened only last month when an independent report found that those housed at Napier Barracks in Folkestone were housed in conditions that were so crowded and so filthy that half of those staying there developed COVID within a week. To question one, what other things, practices, beliefs, worldviews that constitute the status quo and contrast or stand in opposition to the gospel? Question two, who benefits from the status quo? And perhaps more importantly, who loses out? And finally, what is it that we find in our identity and call as disciples of Jesus that challenges the narrative of the world around us? And are we, like the Thessalonians, prepared to hold to the truths of Christ? The letter, 1 Thessalonians, is full throughout of thanksgiving, of Paul's thanksgiving for these people, for this young church. Throughout, Paul time and again praises them for being an example to others, not just in their city, but to other churches across the region. As Jesus' followers, 
What is there, I wonder, in our own discipleship which would turn the world and society upside down that would be so challenging in its gospel authenticity that it would cause a riot? What is happening in and through our community that would cause an old apostle like Paul to overflow with thanksgiving at what he saw? And on the flip side, have we become so comfortable with the status quo that no one perceives us to be any threat whatsoever? In what ways may God be calling us to risk our own comfort and security, to proclaim and live the gospel, even in the face of resistance? So may we hold those questions over the coming weeks as we journey with the Thessalonian church and the challenges that they face and the questions that they ask. Let's pray. Going to pray a Franciscan blessing. May God bless us with discomfort, easy answers, half-truths and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, hunger and war, so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world through his power, so that we can do what others claim cannot be done, to bring justice and kindness to all our children, the poor, and those who are excluded. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.